When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Football Social Daily, the Premier League podcast. Welcome to the award-winning Premier League podcast, Football Social Daily. On today's show, we discuss, is there potential espionage in the city of Manchester? United have a new chief executive and they've pinched him from the City Football Group. We'll talk about that on today's podcast, as well as discussing who we think is the greatest free transfer of all time. There are some free agents still available this January and some pretty big names at that. But who takes the cake for the best Bosman of the Premier League era? Plus, we'll talk about all of the other transfer news, including a potential exit from Manchester City for Calvin Phillips as West Ham is sniffing around. And will Poch progress to a cup final? The man who's lambasted for not really winning any trophies in his career, especially not with Spurs, has a chance to get to Wembley. But they have it all to do against champions Middlesbrough tonight. Can Pochettino's Chelsea make it through to the Carabao Cup final? We'll talk about all of that on today's show with me, Niall McCorn, Joel Tudor and Marley Anderson. Good morning, boys. Morning, evening, wherever you are, whatever you're doing. <laughs> whatever the appropriate time of day is. It's, it's always morning. It's always morning. It's always morning. It always has been for the however many years we've been doing this show now. It's always been morning. And you know what? We would have been up till morning, I think, waiting for a goal in Wolves against Brighton last night. Just felt like one of those games where even though there was chances, it was just destined for nil-nil. I think that was only Brighton's <laughs> second clean sheet of the season. Really? Which is absolutely mental, considering I think they got the first two games ago, something like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, we're, we're not going to spend too much time analysing that no, we're going to spend no time analysing um, that one. Yeah, that's, I'm surprised <laughs> it got this far, to be honest. I'm surprised you even mentioned it, so... Well, I've got to well mention there. it. We are a Premier League podcast after all. And the only Premier League game last night was Wolverhampton Wanderers against Brighton. And it finished goalless. So not a great deal to discuss in terms of the actual on-field action. So let's focus on the off-pitch stuff, which seems to have been at the forefront of our attention this month, Joel. Whether it be January transfer window or betting bans, as we discussed yesterday with Ivan Tony. But what I wanted to mention is something that was announced over the weekend that you didn't get a chance to talk about yesterday. And that involves Manchester United, who have got themselves a new chief executive. He won't start until the summer, but you've pinched him from the City Football Group, which is, of course, the overarching organisation that looks after not just Manchester City, but many other clubs around the world as well. Now, you've had plenty to say about how Manchester United is run. We've seen Ineos and Sir Jim Ratcliffe come in and take a 25% share of the club. 
What do you make of this move? A new chief executive set to start at Manchester United at Old Trafford in the summer. Yeah, I think it's a really encouraging step in the right direction, to be honest. It's probably about, well, since David Gill retired from his role, it's probably since then been that amount of time late in terms of hiring someone just like of his calibre, Omar Barada, who's obviously been kind of almost behind the scenes at Manchester City. He's not been the figure. Obviously, he's been Tiki, um, who's been the kind of main guy, the main focal guy at City, who's been handling the majority of their business. But when you look into what Barada's done for City in terms of their operations, record revenues from their academies, having a hand in player contracts and player negotiations and bringing players in, it's literally everything that United has been really mediocre at in the last 10 years pretty much I mean you look at when Ed Woodward was here and when Richard Arnold who's just recently left his position was here neither of them had that kind of experience in football they were both just Deloitte bankers who came in in terms of the commercial side probably some of the best in the business when it came to that and that shows from United's balance sheets in terms of the commercial success but you don't win games off commercial success you win games off football people the best football people in the right positions and, you know, I think it does pay Manchester City a really good compliment if if that's anything to go by because they are probably one of the best run clubs in the world in terms of what they're doing, their whole project. And I know there's a lot of asterisks around it at the moment, but, I mean, he has played a big role in that over the last few years and that's probably why Man United and Ineos have thought, well, let's get someone who knows exactly what it takes to run a club at a very high level. As you say, this guy is called Omar Berada, and he's not the chief executive of Manchester City, Marley. That is Ferran Soriano, who's obviously very firmly in situ at Etihad Stadium. But Berada has worked with City very closely as part of the City Football Group. It's obviously kind of quite a symbiotic relationship that he has with the board at Manchester City. He has been involved in transfer negotiations. So you'd imagine... Manchester United, when he starts his position there in the summer, he will also be involved in transfer negotiations, which is one of the things that United have been criticised for in terms of how poor they've been at that over the last 10 years or so. Yeah, well, as long as he knows something about football, he's doing better than all the people who were making the decisions at Man United in the boardroom. And I don't mean that as a, as a dig. I just They're a bunch of suits and accountants, aren't they? They, they don't know really what they're doing in terms of player identification, scouting, working with the manager to see what he wants. And that was apparent when Ralph Rangnick said, this is a mess. And they just went, right, piss off then. And they just sacked him instead of facing the problems. And we've talked in depth about it on on the podcast over the years. And, you know, nothing's really changed. Um, You know, then now we've finally got Jim Ratcliffe coming in with his 25%, but doing all the work. Um, in terms of putting processes in place. And one of the first things he's done is go for Omar Barada and he's trying his hardest to nick Dan Ashworth off, off Newcastle. So he's he's made a good start by the sounds of it. Um, the proof will always be in the pudding with who you sign and the success on the field um, in the next year, 18 months, whatever it may be. Um, but yeah, it seems like a, it seems like a good start. Um, and the fact that... It, you know, he starts in the summer, so he's got six months now to delete all his tweets about uh, how he doesn't want Man United to win any case. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was a bit of a shock, actually, when this was announced over the weekend, because not often do you see Manchester United now going to Manchester City and taking someone of importance. That hasn't happened for 
a long, long time. If anything, it was probably the other way around for a long period of time, Joel. So I think that was interesting as well. But the one thing that stood out the most for me was the press statement that Manchester United released alongside the announcement that Borada will be taking up the role in the summer. It said, we want to put football back at the heart of what we do at the club. I guess it leads me to ask, are they basically admitting that football hasn't been at the forefront of their operations in the last few seasons? Yeah, um, when I read it initially, it almost felt like a subliminal diss towards the Glazers as if to say, it's about time we put football at the back of what an actual football club is about, you know, rather than all the antics that goes off on the pit, off the pitch, which seems to be, in my opinion, I think in a lot of Man United fans' opinions, a club that has literally took its eye off the ball, literally every pun intended with that. The whole surrounding of the club has taken its eye off what's actually important. And it's encouraging for me, to be honest, because everyone is probably thinking, and I'm sure Manchester City fans are probably thinking, why is our executive, one of our top executives, going to Manchester United? Well, let's establish the facts first and foremost. One of the biggest clubs in the world. And if you're given the reins to be the top man at that club, it is the most attractive job in world football. He's probably getting paid just as good, if not better. He's got more power. He's going to have a more prominent role. I mean, it's the most attractive thing. He's better in his career. Let's let's not get it twisted right now. This is probably the biggest job of his career. I don't care what anyone says. He's got the keys to the, the club right now. He can dictate it and mould it to how he wants a, a modern Man United to look because right now it's not a modern club. It's catching up. And, you know, that's the best compliment you can pay. I know Manchester City have just placed them on gardening leave now and I'm sure it's a quite... I'd love to see what the, the internal dialogue is around that because, of course, they're all professional. They know that they can get... That's only because it will be in his Manchester City or City Football Group contract that he can't go to a direct competitor. And although some people might joke and say, oh, Manchester United aren't direct competitors, they're from the same city. They're both looking for the same thing, which is to win the biggest trophies, to qualify for the Champions League. So that's the reason he's on gardening leave. And that's the reason he's starting in the summer and not right now. It's because there'll be some sort of competition clause in his contract with Manchester City that means he can't start right away. So that's why he's on gardening leave. Yeah, and I'm sure they won't. He wouldn't. They wouldn't want him going over to the direct rivals with all the information that he's currently got and just <laughs> implementing straight away. But yeah, like I say, I think it's just a really good step in the right direction, and for him, it's a great career move as well. And for example, Gary Neville said it a lot as well. The main problem at United has just been good leadership from the top. That's all it has been pretty much. Having the right structure in place where whatever communicates from the top trickles down in the correct way. And that's, I think, the perfect start to this Ineos kind of era. I mean, Ineos in itself seems to be the one who's led this this search for a CEO. And it's quite evident how there was no leaks. There was nothing that came out until the announcement of it. And for me, that in itself is a really encouraging sign. One thing I did find interesting was someone on social media was talking about how long do we give it in terms of timeline before we start holding Ineos to account. <laughs> Obviously, they've only just got into the building. I guess you can't Straight really start away, right? there. How, how long do we give them before we can hammer them that we're not winning anything? <laughs> I think it's more of a hypothetical thing that this person was trying to get at, which is... Obviously, we'll start from the summer when the new chief executive comes in. Now, Newcastle, you'll have experience of this. We're taken over, what was it, in 2021 or 2020, maybe, Marley? A couple of years now. And obviously, we saw the fruits of that pretty early on. In terms of time frame, is it important that fans remember that this is the start of a new era and there are still going to be some skeletons in the closet that need clearing out before 
stuff starts to actually get rolling. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, the difference between sort of the two takeovers is like Newcastle just needed the investment because um, it didn't come under Mike Ashley, so it was kind of like make all the investment and then and then sort out the spreadsheets and the balance, the PSR sort of stuff when when you've spent the money. Whereas with Man United, it's not like they've been not spending money; they've just been spending it badly. Um, you know, eighty million on on Anthony, eighty million on Maguire, eighty million on Sancho. Um, you know, big money on you know Casemiro and other and Wan Bissaka. Yeah, and a new chief executive isn't going to change that. That's already happened. A new chief executive isn't going to make those better players. He's not going to make Anthony eighty million pounds worth of player. So I guess. Is it important to draw a line in the sand is what I'm saying and kind of think of it as a clean slate, start afresh from the summer when Birada gets his feet under the table and then maybe judge the Ineos era in a couple of years time. I know it's difficult because football fans are fickle. It's hard to stay patient. But is it important that fans do remember that effectively this is a fresh start? Yeah, just um, you've got to give it a bit more time. Um, but the, that... Those changes can start from the summer. Like, yeah, he's on gardening leave. Of course he is, and he's not allowed to start work. But he'll be putting plans in place in if what he wants to do in that six months. He's essentially got six months off work, fully paid. Um, and then he's going he's gonna to think about the landscape at Man United and think, what do I want to do first? Um, and come in and whether that's um, working out what they can spend and what they need to recoup and stuff like that, whatever it may be, he's not... He's not some grifter who's just gonna sit there and take his money. He's probably gonna, he's gonna, like Joel said, it's a, it is the biggest job of his career because he's put in general charge of one of the biggest clubs in the world. So, you know, I always, you know, tongue in cheek tweets and stuff like that, and take the mick out of his tweeting that Man United wanna, he wants him to lose and stuff. But you know, he's a professional. He's he's gonna start work. He's gonna come with a plan. Um, and Man United will have to see that pretty quickly, and I think it would it will be obvious to see it because the signings they make in the summer and the business they do in the summer. Um, however, they are going to have to be clever with getting rid of players and taking them hits um, on losses because there's no one in that Man United squad that you can sell for a profit. I don't think that will genuinely sort of leave. You're not getting eighty million back for Sancho if you sell him to Dortmund. You're not getting 60 for Casemiro. You might shift his wages, but you're taking a 60 million loss or however much he was. Um, if you get rid of Wambasaka, there's a 50 million hit. You might get 20 million back for him if you're lucky. But it's one of them where it, as long as somebody does the sums and works it out, it's not that much of a problem. If you've then got the scouting and the deals in place that you can put to the sporting guys and say, right, he's going in the summer. We're gonna get this guy. Um, you know, go and scout for him and make inquiries, and we can strengthen the team that way. All right. Well, Omar Barada is the new Manchester United chief executive, and he'll start work in the summer after leaving the City Football Group. Next on Football Social Daily, we'll talk about free transfers. There are a few big names still available on freeze, and it's led us to wonder who is the greatest free transfer in the history of the Premier League. We'll talk about it next.
This is your award-winning Premier League podcast, Football Social Daily. Yesterday on the show, we spoke about Ivan Tony and his return to action for Brentford and his return with a goal as well in the 3-2 win over Nottingham Forest after an eight-month ban for betting. You can listen to that by scrolling back in the timeline or if you never want to miss another episode of the podcast again, if you like what you hear, hit subscribe or follow on whichever podcast platform you use and that way whenever we release a new episode, you'll be notified straight away. Now though, we're going to talk about the free transfers still available in the Premier League and also probably more pressingly, we're going to talk about what we think is the greatest free transfer of all time in the Premier League. We've had a question from Mark who sent it to us via Telegram and you can join the Telegram group by clicking the link in the description. We're always open to discuss some of your questions or if there's anything you want us to talk about on the podcast, let us know. All of the links to our social media are in the description. But this is what Mark said. Hi guys, with it being the transfer window at the moment, I'm genuinely interested to hear what you think. I believe that given his young age, his obvious talent and the price that Villa will eventually get for him when they inevitably have to sell him, I think Bubakar Kamara has the potential to become one of the greatest free transfers of the Premier League era. Brilliant business from Villa to get him on a Bosman. My questions are, what are your thoughts on that opinion and who would you all say is currently the best free transfer so far of the Premier League era? So let's tackle part one of Mark's question first, Joel. He says he thinks that Bubakar Kamara has the potential to become one of the greatest free transfers of the Premier League era. That's a really interesting question because it's kind of double-pronged. As earlier on in his question, he said, Villa will inevitably have to sell him for a lot of money. Well, then what are we judging this on? Are we judging it on the couple of seasons that he might have at Villa as a free transfer? Or if he goes on to be sold further down the line, does he still count as a great free transfer? I kind of feel that that undoes. It has to be during the period that he was a free transfer for at that club. It can't be a 40 million transfer away and he's still a free transfer from... So that's okay, what that's the, that's the perimeters. I'm, I'm glad yeah. we've cleared that up because then that brings me on to the next bit of what I was going to say, which is... He's obviously had a great season for Aston Villa, but we're only six months into the season, halfway through the season. He spent a lot of last season injured. Clearly a very good player, but I think maybe this is just a Villa fan getting a little bit ahead of themselves, saying that he might become one of the greatest chances of the Premier League era. He's got some stiff competition, which we'll come on to shortly, but I just thought that might be a little bit too... Jumping the gun. Yeah, <laughs> looking a little bit too far ahead, perhaps. At least at this point, anyway. I mean... You know what? Let Villa fans get excited. I said that since December. I'm never going to be one to try and put a dampener on their party. I'm sure they're enjoy they're enjoying the season massively. But when you look at, I just looked at a list of some of the best Bosman transfers in the Premier League. And although Camaraz had a really good start, he's still got a little way to go to match some of the names that I've seen. But I mean, he's still a super young player. He was really impressive at Marseille. He was wanted by a number of top teams in Europe. And for sure, he's on the right tracks to become a good player. But again, you need to see consistency. And I think, like I said, I've, I've seen names like Zlatan Ibrahimovic come around and and even Demba Bar for Newcastle, he was a free transfer as well. And these are different names where they had really big impacts at their club straight away. So I would let him temper his expectations, but I also understand that he's having a really good season as well. So it's all relative, I guess. The greatest Bosman transfer of all time is Linvoy Primus to Portsmouth Football Club. That is the greatest Bosman ever. Sounds like a transformer. <laughs> <laughs> Linvoy will transform your life when you watch him. As much as I agree that Kamara's had a great season and could well be a, a really good player, I think it's probably a little bit too soon to cast that judgment, Marley, for him to be one of the all-time Bosman greats. 
Bosman transfer and free transfer, by the way, it's just interchangeable language. So a free transfer is a Bosman transfer. So just to clear up any confusion there for any of the younger listeners amongst us. <laughs> yeah, if you look if you look up the, the guy it's named after, he had the most forgettable career. He just wasn't famous at all other than launching this rule. <laughs> so you talk about a legacy on the game, you know. Wasn't wasn't for anything on the field he did, but off the field he changed it, which was obviously very good. He did. And let's go through who we think are some of the best free transfers of the Premier League era. Joel mentioned a couple there. Denver Bar, Zlatan Ibrahimovic. For me, I think there's only one clear winner here. Purely because of the absolute chaos it caused and purely because of what this man achieved in his career, it has to be Sol Campbell leaving Tottenham to go to bitter rivals Arsenal on a free transfer, only to then win the title with Arsenal in an invincible season. And I'm pretty sure I'm right in saying that did he not win the title for Arsenal at White Hart Lane? Unbelievable. He did. I had the same same story in my head. I thought just even if he didn't win anything, just for the chaos it caused, for the absolute meltdown. Um, unfortunately for him at the time, I don't think it, it's ever uh, occurred to him that he's ruined the rest of his rest of his life really because now nobody wants to hire him to be a manager because everyone knows he'll bugger off to anywhere <laughs> anywhere possible so I honestly think that's a massive reason as to why he's struggling to get into the managerial game now um but for a you know for from a playing perspective moving to Arsenal becoming captain winning everything forming a partnership with um with Martin Keown and was he there with Tony Adams? Was there? I'm not sure if it crossed over slightly. Um, yeah, what you know, what a what a signing that was, and what a meltdown it caused. But yeah, nice uh, nice winner for that one. I think Ibrahimovic. Yeah, fine, he did really well for a for a 36 year old or whatever it was. But he was only there for a season, and then he did his knee and and off he went. But yeah, um, Ivan Campo and the like. Everyone in that. Old school Bolton team, JJ Akocha as well. Um, might be in with a shout, but they don't really compare to what Saul Campbell did for Arsenal. Especially winning the title at White Hart Lane after spending nine years at Spurs, leaving on a free and signing for Arsenal, going unbeaten during a season. I just don't think that can be topped. I just can't see a way, in, unless you've got anyone there, Joel, to, to spring a surprise. I mean, in terms of like impact, it is hard because he won two Premier Leagues at Arsenal as well and it's their bitter rivals. I mean, I just think back to Van Persie. I know it wasn't a free transfer, but just that kind of bitter resentment kind of transfer is horrible. For me, one of my personal favourites was uh, Michael Ballack when Chelsea got him from Bayern. He was one of the earliest recollections of a transfer where I was literally obsessed with it. I think I was only around 10 at the time watching Sky Sports is a... Uh, yellow line going across and he was linked with Man United and I think he was linked with Real Madrid and then he chose to go to Chelsea and I was absolutely devastated and I just remember him being a really solid part of that Chelsea team between 2006 and I think it was 2010 and he was such a core midfielder under Ancelotti during that period and Avram Grant as well if you want to consider that part as well I mean he played against United in the Champions League final he was so good and he probably should have stayed longer, to be honest. I thought he was just a colossal midfielder. But in terms of getting that calibre of player for a free, I, I thought that was such a good transfer from Chelsea. How about this one? James Milner, 38 years old, turned 38 at the start of the month, left Manchester City in 2015 and went to Liverpool on a free. Last night, 
by featuring for Brighton, he became outright second in the all-time appearance makers list in the Premier League. I think he's only 20 appearances behind Gareth Barry now. And I think those two are good mates as well, actually. And it looks likely that if he carries on and plays until he's 40, a la Ryan Giggs, he might well break that record of appearances in the Premier League, which is held by his friend Gareth Barry. But to leave Manchester City in 2015, to sign for Jurgen Klopp's side on a free transfer, win the Premier League, win the FA Cup, win the Carabao Cup, win the Champions League, win the Club World Cup, I mean, as far as free transfers go, if we're talking about Sol Campbell's achievements, Marley, James Milner, surely he's got to be up there for his impact he had on that Liverpool side. Yeah, he's he's up there for, for definite. But the one, the one asterisk and the one caveat I would say about that is when Liverpool were at full strength, James Milner wasn't in that team. Um, he was never quite a key, even though he was he was key in the dressing room and key in... He can play anywhere. He can play left back, right back, centre mid, defensive mid. He can even play on the wing if you want a, a marauding left back or right back looking after. Um, he was never in that first eleven. If everyone was fit, I don't think. Um, still played plenty of games, like I say, but maybe not. When you compare that to Saul Campbell, who was an absolute mainstay and just a concrete rock at the back, you know, um, played every game unless he was obviously injured or suspended, but. Uh, yeah, still quality. You know, made his debut at 16 years old for Leeds. Um, Newcastle signed him off the back of that. I still remember him, you know, playing with Alan Shearer and and Jermaine Genus and Kieran Dyer at our place. Um, and some of the most horrendous defenders defenders he's ever played in front of because we we weren't blessed with good defenders back then. But he was. Um, you could tell he was always quality. Um, and he was just a proper athlete. Um, even at 16, when he filled out into his sort of man body, he was like, he was just stamina wise, in, insane quality wise, like amazing as well. Um, and I seen a stat um, on Twitter the other day that said of the, of every player to have played in the Premier League, he's played at the same time as like something like 50% of them. Like just... <laughs> Think about that. There was something like 4,500 players that have played in the Premier League and he's played against like 2,600 of them or something like that. It was crazy, the longevity. Um, there's players playing in the Premier League now that weren't born when James Milner made his debut. Like, that's how long he's been going and he's obviously going to take Gareth Barry's record and probably probably smash it. I mean, I don't know what the record is. Is it 460 or something like that? Oh, no, 600 and something. Is it? 650, 600... yeah, something wow. like that. He's on 620-something, I think, now, after his appearance last night. Took him yeah. second, took him past Ryan Giggs, who, as I mentioned earlier, played until he was 40. And Milner, having just turned 38, you'd imagine he's got a fair few appearances left this season. So he might get another 10 this season, let's just say. And then all of a sudden, he just needs to make 10 here and there <laughs> and stumble over the line and become record appearance maker. Yeah, and then, you know, he's 40 and he'll probably go straight into management and... You know, there won't be many weekends in, in our lives where we haven't seen James Milner on, on the pitch or involved somewhere um, because he's uh, he's got the record. And I can see him making a really good coach as well. Um, his intelligence is, and his professionalism seems to um, naturally go into that coaching sort of uh, thing. So could be seeing him for a while yet. And aside from obviously being at Brighton now and a short loan spell at Swindon in his early days... He's played for some of the biggest clubs in the country as well. Leeds United, Newcastle, Aston Villa, Manchester City and Liverpool. 
It's a pretty good CV. Not bad, is it? Have you guys got any notable ones? Ones where they're not quite the highest caliber. I was just looking at the list then. Brad Friedel during Tottenham that he did 310 consecutive Premier League games until the new French hunk came in and ruined it for him. Uh, also, Christian Eriksen to Brentford was a, is one that I think a lot of people forget. I think I like the storyline around that. Is it anyway? Just because he was originally at Inter Milan anyway. And then they suddenly signed him after the Euros and he was such a massive influence. And then he got a move to United. I guess that's like how the argument from the Telegram question is, how do you view it? Was it the move after that actually shows it was a very good one? Because a move to Man United after Brentford is a pretty big step up, isn't it? But there are a few decent notables. Not that much of a step up <laughs> in terms of league position. You know, Brad Friedel should have, uh, should have signed for Newcastle back in uh, when he first came to England, when he had hair. Oh, that must have been a long time. He would have gone um, bold a lot quicker if he went to Newcastle. 100%. <laughs> Nine, I think it was 96. We had him, or 98, something like that. We had him uh, on a trial and he was great. Um, and we couldn't get a work permit for him because he hadn't made the um, appearances for the USA and stuff like that. So he came back uh, a couple of years later and he ended up signing for, for Blackburn, I think. They somehow got him a permit and... The rest is history, but we signed Shea Given anyway, so it wasn't wasn't that much of a of a loss. But um, another one that Newcastle famously just couldn't get over the line. Let's talk about free agents that are still available now, though. We seem to talk about these two players quite regularly because they're the two most high-profile players. I've had a look through a list of, I think, 50 free agents before the podcast today. And aside from a few names like Danny Rose, who used to play for Spurs, can't see him getting a Premier League move again. The two clearest ones, two players we talk about all the time, David De Gea and Jesse Lingard. De Gea is a strange one, that. I can't believe he's still six months later without a club. I think he's probably just turning them down because he sees himself at a better club than the ones that he's getting at the moment. But I guess it's justification of United letting him go because it clearly shows his quality. If no club has gone to take him on, who was apparently one of the best keepers in the world. Yeah, Had he signed for another club since leaving Manchester United? I don't think people would be as scrutinous on Onana because David De Gea is still kind of sat there hovering around in the wilderness, if you will. People naturally draw comparisons between the two keepers because David De Gea still doesn't have a club. I don't know whether you guys agree with me, but I feel like if he had a club, people would be less likely to get stuck into Onana because let's say De Gea makes a couple of mistakes. Then that brings a bit of justification to the poor performances from Onana and people that said De Gea wasn't the right man for the job. The fact that he doesn't have a club, I think actually probably works in his favour and works against Onana. I'd, I'd be tempted to go the other way, you know, and say if he had signed for another club, I think he'd be playing well because of the pressure of Man United wouldn't be on him. And I think he'd be doing, as soon as he pulls off a ridiculous save for, a, for his new club, whoever that may be in whatever league, it would immediately go viral for our goalie can't catch a cold and we've replaced this guy with him and it'd be De Gea like clawing one off the line or whatever and then you get Anana just flapping, flapping like a bird at every cross he, he comes for and, and making all sorts of mistakes. But I think it's, with De Gea it's like, well with Onana versus De Gea, you know, people are saying, well he's not he's not much better. Uh, he's, he's arguably worse Onana, but they do, What what's kind of nice is they do sort of remember the good parts of De Gea as well as, yeah, he, he needed replacing in his previous, in his later years because he sort of didn't quite adapt to the new style and let errors creep into his game and what have you. But at his best, he was he was one of the best in the world, probably top three, top five in the world all the time. 
Um, and I think he won Man United's Player of the Year like three years in a row or something, which is, you know, great to do. I mean, the caveat of that is everyone else was crap, so he was probably the most overworked goalkeeper in the in the league. But still, he was performing to to a higher level. But I just don't know about the hunger for the game anymore. Um, I think there was rumours that he was flirting with retirement, and he was that set on not joining just any old club that he would happily retire. I know he's big into like um, gaming and stuff and launching esports and being involved in that side of it. So I don't know whether that's where he wants to go or or what have you, but he's certainly good enough to walk into any top eight team in any league around Europe, I would say. We're going to leave free agents to one side now. I'm going to talk about real transfers. Calvin Phillips is someone who's been lined up for an exit from Manchester City for a while now. Could West Ham be that escape route? We'll discuss it next on Football Social Daily. My name's Niall, joined by Joel and Marley on today's Football Social Daily. As always, if you like what you hear, why not leave us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. And you can also hit subscribe and that way you won't miss an episode. Now, though, we're going to talk about what's been quite a quiet January transfer window. We spoke about free transfers in the last segment. Now we're going to talk about Calvin Phillips, who's another player who's been a topic of discussion on this show multiple times over the last few months. Looks like he could finally have a way out of Manchester City, Joel, and that looks like West Ham United. I think with Calvin Phillips, when he initially went to Man City, I just thought that Guardiola just never fancied him from the off. And it's been so apparent. I think he thought that he could adapt to his football quicker, but then he didn't realise just how good Rodri was going to be in the end. And then because of Rodri's meteoric rise, Calvin Phillips has not got a sniff. I mean, Rodri's barely ever injured. And when he gets injured or he gets suspended, he just ends up putting someone like Kevin De Bruyne in the holding role and just dominates the game. That way, there's just never been an, an entrance for him to do anything. And then obviously came back from pre-season break overweight in the words of Guardiola and it just felt like that was the beginning of the end and whether or not he had the quality I just felt like that move from Leeds to City I think that was made out of convenience rather than anything else by Phillips more so just because it was closer to his family because I know that he's a massive massive family man he didn't want to move outside the northwest or in the north in general but I think for West Ham that would be the right kind of move for him I don't know if he'd be available to do that in terms of what he wants but it's almost about three years out of his career now at Manchester City. It's literally like he's taken a hiatus for three years. And while he's at the peak of his powers, maybe so, maybe not, we'll soon see and we'll soon find out. I just don't understand how he can continuously just sit and wait because a footballer's career is so short. And for the player that he was at Leeds, which is a pretty good player, sometimes it feels to me like that Leeds Bielsa side was also like a Brighton where when a player leaves that system, they almost get exposed. And it feels like in Manchester City, when you're in a team like Guardiola's, you probably have two years to prove yourself because otherwise you're out the door quite quickly. We've seen it with Grealish in his transitionary period. It was slow. So I think for Phillips, it's now or never. I'd, I'd be very surprised if he keeps clinging on because Guardiola doesn't fancy him. Obviously, a move to West Ham will bring its own headlines for various reasons it looks like it's going to be a loan deal does that make sense for West Ham Marley because we don't know whether David Moyes is going to still be the manager of the Hammers come next season so it does make more sense I think for both parties for this to be a loan move rather than a permanent one things could change at West Ham 
you know, if Moyes goes, you don't want to sign for a club and then have a new manager, even though the manager might, you know, he might like you, but he might not, you know, you never know. So you want that stability there. In the short term, you want to play football. West Ham will, you would assume, would give him plenty of football. Um, And also there's the thing that you mentioned before, you know, Calvin Phillips has never lived in the south of England. He's never lived in London. He might not like it. So if you go on a loan for six months, you're only there for six months. And if you don't like it, you you assess your options in the summer and say, I want to be closer to my family. You might go back to Leeds if they come up, for example. Uh, If they come up through the playoffs or automatic. Um, Newcastle might have money in the summer and fancy him. And then that's a little bit closer to to Leeds and stuff like that. You you never know. Um, So for me, it doesn't really make much sense to go permanent. Just go and play. Prove yourself. Get in. Get in. Uh, regular football before the Euros we all know he's England quality but we all doubt whether he deserves a place because he's simply not playing um, I don't think anyone can can um, hold it against him if he if he goes and plays for six months and then gets in the England squad, everyone knows that that's all he needs to do, just play um, so just go and play, get your head down for six months Yeah, you know that'll that's be it. part of his thinking, making getting a loan move away from City because he needs to play football heading into the summer if he does want to make it into the Euro squad. I mean, I think even if he didn't, Gareth Southgate would probably take him anyway. But that's just the way things are with players. I think he's probably had a word with Calvin Phillips and said, come on, get yourself some games and you'll have a much better chance of making it into my squad for the summer. That will do us for transfers. Tonight, there is a game between Chelsea and Middlesbrough. It's the second leg of the Carabao Cup semi-finals. Chelsea with work to do here, Joel. We mentioned how Pochettino in the past has been criticised for a lack of silverware, particularly when Tottenham manager. And he's not done the best job at Chelsea so far, albeit he's inherited a really difficult situation at Stamford Bridge with a high turnover of players and lots of pressure. If Chelsea are knocked out of the semi-finals of the Carabao Cup by a championship side, that's just going to put more pressure on Pochettino and his reputation. Yeah, I think Pochettino's on really thin ice at the moment, probably more so than people would be led to believe. I mean, the fact that they're in the position they are in the Premier League with all these plays at his disposal, with all this money that's been paid, and the fact that they're still stuttering, it feels like two steps forward but then five steps back in terms of their progress it's felt like that for the majority of the season and we've seen Todd Bowley's hand a numerous amount of times now in the last year or so where he's clearly him and his board are not afraid to manoeuvre and change who they think should be uh, the leader of the squad and the fact that you know Middlesbrough got a 1-0 lead they'll definitely fancy this going to Stamford Bridge I mean Stamford Bridge what I used to remember it as was an absolute fortress where you'd be lucky to even score there. Now it feels like you're lucky to not score at least three and at least take three points minimum because it's just become an open day ground. It's like the the dog track as it used to be back in the day. That's literally what it is. Now it's an open season for any team that goes there. So I think the cup competitions for Pochettino right now will be vital. Obviously they won 4-0 against Preston in their FA Cup game. I'd have all eyes on that going forward for Chelsea. This is the perfect opportunity for quick silverware. The, the finals in what is it, end of February? It's the quickest way to get a trophy and just get your season a little bit polished and have a nice little high with the squad. But again, it's not easy to win. On the flip side, Marley, Middlesbrough take a 1-0 lead into this game at Stamford Bridge. Michael Carrick says he's expecting the best version of Chelsea to show up tonight. But if after 20 minutes, Chelsea haven't found an equaliser in the tie and Middlesbrough go and score another one, 
can the Teesiders prey on that vulnerability? Because Stamford Bridge isn't the fortress that it used to be. It's not like it was when Jose Mourinho went four years unbeaten or something at home. They're vulnerable, Chelsea, even on their own patch now. Yeah, I think um, Middlesbrough's tactic will be to try and use the crowd and use the nerves um, and get them, you know, get to half time at nil nil, for example, and just make that crowd get get nervy. Um, but Chelsea have, you know, at home they've been a little bit better. I remember in the last round when, you know, they they knocked Newcastle out, um, and it was from you know a ninety second minute equaliser and then they won on penalties. But for the game. They had 70% possession and they pretty much dominated the game um, and were battering on the door. I think our goalie played really well that day and uh, made a f- a f- quite a few great saves to keep us in it. Um, and then they got the, the equaliser at the end and the rest is, is you know, the lottery of penalties, if you want to use that cliche. But um, I hate that cliche, by the way. I know. Way. I don't know we're in true, cup competition. It? We've got the Carabao Cup. We've got the FA Cup. Penalties is not a lottery. That's why Germany is so good at penalties in international tournaments. Penalties is a chance to win the match. But we have this mentality in England. It's a lottery. Yeah, that's, someone's that's why we're so lose. bad at it. We call it, we call it a lottery because we never win. <laughs> that's that's I agree with the German mentality. That's all it is. Penalties is a chance to win the match. If you can hold your <laughs> bottle, you will win. Yeah, true. Is it not true? It's true. It's like what I said about referees. Just be better. Just score (laughs) pens and you'll win. If you put the ball in the net, you've got a bigger chance to win. And start calling you Michael Owen. (laughs) When they don't score, they hardly ever win. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Do you think Chelsea will go through tonight? Yeah, you think so. You just know it will go to penalties now and someone will bottle it. Cole Palmer, bet you. If it goes to penalties, he'll miss. After all them penalties he scored in the Premier League, he'll like five penalties. <laughs> yeah. He'll miss his spot kick from the uh, shootout. Well, I'm sure on tomorrow's Football Social Daily, we'll dissect the outcome of that game at Stamford Bridge as we are one step closer to finding out who the first cup finalists are for this season. It's the Carabao Cup semi-final this evening. Chelsea against Middlesbrough. You can join us tomorrow on the podcast by hitting subscribe or follow. But that is it from us today on FSD. So we will see you next time. Catch you then. Football Social Daily is a voice work sport production for the Sports Social Podcast Network.